Green Bay, November 21st, 1992. An employee at the James River Paper Company, Thomas Monfiles, mysteriously goes missing during his shift. After a 30-hour search, both inside and out of the mill, Monfiles is finally found in the most horrifying way imaginable. After draining the pulp vat, the body of Thomas Monfiles is found submerged inside with a 50-pound weight tied around his neck. In the ensuing trial, one of the most high profile in the history of Wisconsin, six men would be charged with his murder. But after 30 years, questions remain. Is a Union Brotherhood upholding a code of silence? Or did the Green Bay police conspire to solve the case by any means necessary? Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 24 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? I'm your other host, Mickey Sanders. The other host. How you doing, man? Things are good. Feels like it's been a long time since we recorded. Actually, because we only had two weeks between the last two episodes, but this time... This is a little further. But it, it, we've been busy, though, right? We're, we're doing stuff. Well, yeah, we've been we've been busy. We were uh, invited by the state of Wisconsin for their all-state conference in La Crosse earlier this month. Not the state of Nevada. Not the, the state, state of, of Wisconsin, state. which is um, what we talk about. Yeah, there's a correlation there, folks. So we did a presentation at their all-state conference earlier this month. Had a great time. You know, we we had a, a good crowd, good questions afterwards. We went out and visited a couple of the local establishments beforehand the night before. So uh, it was good time. Want to thank um, the state of Wisconsin DQA for inviting us. Would love to come back next year if they would so have us. It's uh, been a while since I did public speaking, probably since college. And we, I mean, we had their attention. Yeah, they laughed. They they were in shock. I've never been in front of a crowd and, and collectively heard oohs and ahs, and we did. So other than our amazing speaking ability, it may have been more about the subject matter, but I, I think they were just enthralled by the two individuals standing in well, front of the Well, how could crowd. you not be? I, I mean, mean just drop dead gorgeous. Two faces for podcasts. And just right, standing up in front of a crowd. Charismatic <laughs> radio type people. <laughs> We'll definitely be back, no question about it. Also, I want to give a shout out 
to the Neville Public Museum in Green Bay for having me out last Thursday for they closed out their 2022-2023 dinner presentation season um, with myself uh, for a talk about my book, Finding Dairyland. It was a great event. We had a packed house at the theater there at the uh, Neville Public Museum. Very engaged audience. Uh, lots of questions. Great conversations afterwards. Yeah, couldn't couldn't be happier about how that went. So uh, thank you so much to the Neville, and I uh, hope to be back there again in the future. Mickey and I do have some other things coming up later in the summer, which we will talk about um, as time goes on here, including the first annual Great Lakes Paranormal Conference happening September 22nd through the 24th in beautiful Glen Beulah, Wisconsin, with all kinds of members from your favorite paranormal TV shows, Jason Hawes from Ghost Hunters, Adam Barry from Kindred Spirits and Ghost Hunters, Shane Pittman from The Holzer Files, Dave Schrader from the Paranormal 60 and Darkness Radio. Um, all kinds of personalities are going to be there. And Scott and Mickey from Badger Bazaar. And Scott and Mickey from Badger Bazaar. We'll have a table there all weekend, again, September 22nd through the 24th. Tickets are still available for that. You can order those at Great Lakes Paranormal Conference. Dot com. So I think we, we should talk about our last episode on St. Nazians, because that caused a little bit of a dent in social media that we saw. Uh, not necessarily the content of the episode, but people living in St. Nazians and people that went to JFK Prep are very, very protective, protective of the legacy. More of so place. than any other episode we've done. I mean, and we've, we try to be open-minded and non-judgmental about everything. And we speak the truth and we, we at some point give our opinions, but no other episode had any kind of response that this one did. People Vitriolic are so pr- response. Right? right. They're very protective is the word we're going to use. They didn't like the episode coming out about St. Nazians, about JFK. The they didn't is, like it before they heard it. Right. They never listened to it. And that's the thing. They just see, they see more fodder coming out. So they just assumed we were town. doing the same right. thing. Right. Exactly. And really, how do you blame them? You know, well, I mean, they've been they've been listening to this for forty years. People, sure, but that's why you give something a chance. People, before you well, every time they o- open something on on the internet, it's about abusive nuns and sexual trauma of school kids, right? And, and just just BS in general. Exactly. But that, but right. that's why we need to, as we've mentioned before, stop jumping to conclusions, including the people who are being defensive and the people who are making those judgments. Just. First, listen to our podcast and realize we're not doing that. And second, the people making these ridiculous accusations need to find the facts before they right. I, you know, I, jump I, to those conclusions. These these places matter to people. Of course, right? I mean, obviously, we, in we, this case. So especially. we we received, you know, a lot of the negative stuff was on comments and things like that on threads online. But we received a lot of emails and a lot of private messages too from people who were very thoughtful responding. Yeah, there was only a few that were just accusatory. Positively, what's going on? So, you know, I think as we've talked about before, you know, creators have a responsibility, I believe, to not just continually perpetuate this bullshit. Right. You know, and that's what we're trying to do. And that was the point we were trying to make, but they didn't necessarily want to hear it because they're just automatically in the defensive, unfortunately. These places matter to people. I mean, how how many times did we hear the word magical when people are talking to us about their experiences there? I mean, this, this was a really good place to a lot of people for many years. And every time they see something online about it, it's about... You know, nuns sexually abusing kids, and there's no evidence of any of that ever happening, ever. Even so, the positive response that we got would say that. Even the people who went there, they would say they they felt presences, but it was nothing was based on any of that. So sure. yeah, that was all bunk, and that, that was the point of our episode. And that's why these people who are a little bit defensive, but definitely protective, 
need to listen to the episode before they start accusing us of stuff because ultimately they're kind of being guilty of the things that they don't want other people doing to them and their school. Sure. They they went off on the episode before they ever listened to the episode because they, they thought it was the same trash that they've always Just don't be guilty at. of the stuff that you right. don't like, obviously, right? Right. But but again, when people keep perpetuating this stuff, it hurts people. Of and, course. You know, it matters to people. And I just think creators like us have, have a responsibility. And we like you said, we try to do it on every episode. We try to look at the human element of this stuff, you know, and how and we it try to get to the people. facts and, and see everybody's point of view. And just, we're not trying to jump to those conclusions. So I think my exact words in the episode were quote, it's all complete bullshit. Yeah. You period, said unquote. multiple said times as a matter of fact. So, I mean, that doesn't mean again, that I don't think it's haunted. I do think it's haunted because there's been now, is it, is it haunted by, you know, tortured souls of, of kids that were abused by demonic nuns? No, no. It's, it goes back to what your definition of haunting means. There's 160 years of activity on that campus. As you and Jim right. have said, and I don't have enough experience to even speak to it, but you and Jim have mentioned multiple times residual energy is everywhere. No question about it. Decades, over a century and a half of activity in those buildings and on that campus, that energy remains there, 100%. As in any other place you go to. Now, we, we are not done with St. Nazian's. We are going to continue on it. We're going to go there, and we're going to draw more conclusions that way. So but we're never going to jump to conclusions, so please don't do that about us. So we, we'll definitely have follow-up episodes coming about St. Nazian's, whether the people in St. Nazian's or that went to JFK like it or not. You know, I, I hope I hope they do, as you said, Mickey, listen to the episodes first. Right. Another place that we're going to be going to this summer, though, and I'm super excited for this. We're going to Summerwind. Mickey and I are going to Summerwind in July. Second episode. Second. If you listened, episode number two of Badger Bazaar is all about It doesn't Summerwind. mean it was shitty either. It was just the second yeah, episode. Right. Second episode all about what is probably the best known haunted location in the entire state of Wisconsin. Uh, again, named by Life Magazine at one point as one of the top ten most haunted houses in Wisconsin. We had a list. That, or in America, I believe. And we had a list about haunted places in Wisconsin, even. That was on there. No no question. So um, our friend Craig Naring at uh, Fox Valley Ghost Hunters is doing, it looks like probably one final weekend where paranormal investigations are going to be allowed on, on the property. The property is being sold. So Summerwind right now is up for sale. So who knows what's going to happen to the property after this. Do you have any idea why now it's being sold? No. I think that the owners have owned it for decades and that they're older now. And I just think they want to, I think they just want to be done with it. Move on with it. So who knows what's going to happen to the property? You know, it could be completely raised and, you know, somebody will build a nice lake house on it. Maybe somebody opens up a bed and breakfast. Maybe somebody in the paranormal field buys it and opens it up to paranormal investigators. We have zero idea of what's going to happen. Maybe they'll just try to bring some haunted energy from some other place and add to it. Is that a thing? Can you do that? I'm, I, you I'm know not what? sure you can if do If it that. can be done, it'll probably, summer wind is probably the place if, it's going to happen. If anywhere it could happen, truth, right? it's there. So this, this very well may be the last time any of this can occur on this property. So uh, in mid-July, I think it's the night of July 14th, Mickey and I are going to be heading up there with some others, including Jim Cooper, our uh, paranormal expert, is going to be with us. And that wonderful wife of yours. That, that wonderful wife of mine of. is going to be with us. And you, listeners as well, can join if you so choose. There are still a few spots open, middle of July, July 14th, July 15th, a Friday and Saturday night, one or the other. You can probably pay for both if you'd like. 
Um, and you'll need to contact Craig Naring if you would like to do that. So look him up. He's on Facebook at Fox Valley Ghost Hunters, LLC. Just search for Fox Valley Ghost Hunters. You will find it on their Facebook page. You can come up there for a night or two if you choose and, um, and hang out. You can, if you don't want to do that, you can contact us. You can send us an email at badgerbazaaroutlook.com and we can point you in the right direction for that and uh, talk to Craig for you if you would like. So he, He's the one we spoke to in our Summer Wind episode of, of The Paranormal. He, yes, we did a follow-up episode of Summer Wind with Craig. We interviewed him, I don't know, what epi- What was that, number seven or something it like that? It was right around there, yeah. So if you want to look for that episode as well, it was a, a follow-up to Summer Wind with Craig Naring. Craig Naring is um, the foremost expert on Summer Wind, probably alive. Well, there's people that have lived there that are alive. So, you know, Craig, Craig is up there for certain in terms of knowing the most about this property. So again, episode number nine, episode nine, if you want to check that out. So number two and number nine. So if you want to head up there with Mickey and I and Fox Valley ghost hunters, go ahead and check them out or get a hold of us. And we can point you in the right direction to come up there and do a little paranormal investigating and hanging out with me and Mickey and, uh, Jim, Jim and Vicky and getting mauled by mosquitoes. What? (laughs) Could be a better night. Than what that. a sales pitch! A couple things that uh, we want to talk about. A couple of updates we have for you. Several episodes ago, you know, we've been following the case of Ronald Henry, who was a person that went missing several months ago in Grant County, which is what caught our attention in the first place. I don't think Grant County has a whole lot of missing person cases going on. So Ronald Henry was the uh, 34-year-old man who went missing. Uh, he went to look for dogs that he thought were uh, sounding distressed outside in March and uh, never returned. And then they found his body a few weeks later. I know the family uh, had some concerns about the investigation not going really as quickly as they would hope for, but his they body... They were adamant about yeah. the, the, how upset they were with what was going on. His body was found a few weeks later, and there was uh, apparently no trauma to the body that was found. So there were always some questions about what exactly happened. We have answers to that now. On May 8th, 2023, the Grant County Sheriff's Office announced that Ronald Henry had passed away from hypothermia. And also, uh, meth has been named as a contributing factor. So at some point, he went outside uh, in the winter, middle of the night. He became likely disorientated at some point, and uh, the worst happened. So a sad end, but there's certainly a... Um, we Not have... trying to jump to conclusions, but obviously if there was meth involved, he maybe made a bad decision and may have been just self-induced tragedy, unfortunately. Another case here that we've been following, I don't think we've mentioned it before yet. Several weeks ago, there were human remains found in Little Lake Butamore in Fox Crossing. Now, this was discussed by law enforcement as human remains, not a body. Uh, Obviously, those are, you know, one and the same. But, you know, when you say human remains, um, people think that maybe, obviously, it's not as recent as what a human body would be. Now, when you talk about human remains found in Fox Crossing, which... If you're not familiar with Fox Crossing, it's in between, really, Appleton and Menasha. It's where I used to work, but it's a tiny little city. Now, the day that this was... Town. The day that this was announced, the internet was going nuts, and the name you hear all the time is Lori Deppis, right? Human remains found in Fox Crossing. Fox Crossing is the area in which Lori Deppis disappeared from years ago. 30, I think, years ago, back in 1992. So... Law enforcement gave an update on this a couple weeks ago. It says, quote, the, the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office provided a new update on human remains found last week in a marshy area at Little Lake Butamore in Fox Crossing. 
quote, due to the state of the human remains, normal methods of identification are not possible, the sheriff's office said Monday. So obviously we have way too much uh, decomposition going on that they couldn't identify the human remains through normal methods, which means that they're going to have to get DNA and things involved like that. So obviously that name, Lori Deppis, keeps popping up. There's been nothing from law enforcement to corroborate that. Law enforcement has said that even though they haven't identified the body. She disappeared August 19th, 1992. It's just pure speculation online right now. According to law enforcement, other things were found with the human remains that they believe that they are able to identify the body, at least initially that way. So they do have reason to believe that they think they know who these remains belong to. And law enforcement has said that they have talked to that family to tentatively say, we think this is your loved one. We do not know who that person is. They're not. They're sure it's not her, though. Or no, they're not. Nobody's sure. No. Well, they they might be. Okay. But they're not saying that. They're I not don't, saying if it's her or not. They're saying nothing. No. All they're they're just saying that they think they know who it is. I do not think it's Lori Deppis because I don't. I, I think by this was two weeks ago. I think that would have been leaked out by now. So we'll be following this. Uh, as law enforcement gives more information about it, which is interesting that they're really tight-lipped about this. And I, I understand that they don't want to say who it is before it's confirmed with DNA. But, you know, the remains were found. They came out and confirmed they were found. The Lori Deppis stuff goes crazy online. And nobody came out to squelch that, which was interesting to me at first. But again, law enforcement saying they have an idea who it is. They've talked to the family. But as far as we know, Lori Deppis or Amber Wilde, you know, that's the other name that you always hear when there's remains found in this area. And the way things are nowadays, as, as hypersensitive as everybody is and as quick to respond and as quick to know information as we are, these police departments and authoritative departments, they, they need to watch every step because they will get scrutinized. So they have to know affirmatively, without a doubt, before they can release anything. And I don't blame them for... Taking the time, the problem is they get scrutinized for that even, and that's kind of the whole point. Sure, and, and they're not, you know, I think the last of their concerns is public opinion right now. You know, right. if, if Lori Depp but they do have to, they have no to, question about it. They right. have to worry about that to some degree because, you know, their credibility goes gets questioned like everything, and that's the point. No matter what they do, they're going to get questioned. So they want to make sure they know the answer before they give it out. Or they will get scrutinized because that's what we do now. Sure. You know, I just, there, there's a limited amount of people that are missing from this area, you know, and not, that's not to say that this person is definitely missing from this area. But, you know, there's a reason Lori Deppis' name keeps coming up anytime a body is found in this area. There's not that many. I mean, there's a number of them, obviously, but how many people are missing from Fox Crossing area? Well, and it was know? just so, it became so well known. Right. Everybody knew her name. Right. You know, and it was the last time this happened a couple of years ago, it, it turned out to be uh, when a body was found at High Cliff. What, two years ago, it turned out to be the body of Starkey Swenson, which was a very famous missing person case from the 1980s. So and, and he was, you know, somebody f walking their dog at, well, there you go, High Cliff again. Maybe well, yeah, we <laughs> talk about haunting. The most haunted say, campground yeah, right. in the state, you know, I wonder there's, why. There's some correlation, right? possibly. So, yeah. You know, a guy that's been buried there for 40 years and, you know, somebody walking their dog like trips over an ankle or something funny funny story i don't think i ever told you this about starkey swenson starkey starkey swenson was a guy that went missing in the early 80s pretty sure a law enforcement pretty pretty sure that he was murdered by a guy who they know who it is it's kind of a love triangle thing going on but i, I was home this was about two years ago when his well, actually when his body was found you were involved in the love triangle i was not okay. no no sorry i jumped so to conclusions I, I wasn't home at this time i don't remember where i, where I was but my wife sent me a a text message and 
uh, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't your normal text message. I'm, I'm, she was I'm, involved in the love triangle. I'm, not that Sorry, I, I'm, trying, I'm not that I know of. I'm trying to the predict love the triangle f- has nothing to do with me or my. I'm family. trying to predict the ending. I'm sorry, I, I'll stop. So she sends me this text message, and the text message says something to the effect of, two Winnebago County homicide detectives just pulled up in our driveway in a big black SUV, and they came to the door asking for your dad." <laughs> For Wayne? For Wayne Whitman. So I'm I'm reading this text and I'm like, the first thing that comes to my mind is, huh, I wonder why they came to my house looking for my dad. Right. right. And then it dawns on me. Your dad's been in his house. Homicide detective? Like, what? What is going on here? Two homicide detectives. As we've said, we've grown, we grew up near each other. Our parents have been in their houses since before we were alive. Right. My parents live in their own house in Apple. Still, both of our parents. I don't know why they came. To my house. So I call my wife right away and I'm like, what did, what did you just send me? And she's like, yeah. She says, These, this black SUV pulls up in our driveway and two guys get out uh, and they identify themselves and they show their badges and stuff. It's Winnebago County homicide detectives and they're looking for Wayne Whitman. And she's like, well, that's my father-in-law and he lives in his own house in Appleton. And they're like, oh, sorry about that. Why did they what think he lived with hell? you anyway? I don't know. So I call my dad right away, right? And I'm trying to figure out why these homicide cops are looking for him. And he doesn't answer his phone. So I send text he's messages. He's on the lam. It's hard to answer your phone he's when you're running. Out. He's hiding out. So I send a text to him, my mom, and my two sisters. And I'm like, and I tell them this. I'm like, two homicide cops just you went by. You told your mom? I t- yeah, I, d- I told everybody. That was a good I'm looking, decision. I'm looking for my dad. You told right? your mom? <laughs> She gets a little up in arms every no. now and again. I send a text message to all of them because I'm looking for, for dad and I tell him this and nobody responds for like five minutes. And then my sisters, you know, respond like, what? What's going on? And then my dad responds back finally. And he says, oh, yeah, oh, those are two cops. They're just uh, investigating a murder that happened about 35 years ago. No big deal. And that's how he ends the that's text. That's how your dad how responds text, to everything. Right? Just, <laughs> it was a text. He, he says, ah. Uh, yeah, two cops are looking for me about a murder that happened 35 years ago, and he ends it with no big deal. I can hear him saying that in person, and that was in text, which even nullifies it even more. But your dad is really calm and mellow and does does not respond. So then my sisters take over the, the text thread. And then I remember, because I had just listened to this podcast. There's a podcast out. It's a local podcast. It's done by... Uh, an anthropology professor at UW Oshkosh. I don't remember his name. I think his name is Jordan Karsten. And uh, he, he, there's two seasons of his podcast. The podcast is called Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Obviously, the frozen tundra being uh, in Lambeau Field, a reference to Northeast Wisconsin, because right. they have two seasons of it, and it's a, a basically two cold cases that they're investigating. The first season is Starkey Swenson. The second season is Lori Deppis. So highly recommend that podcast we don't know them we have no affiliation with them but go ahead and look up that that podcast the two seasons are really interesting again it's called cold case frozen tundra so uh, why did they call your dad about that so so in the podcast while i was listening to the podcast i remember them saying that the person that they believe killed starkey swenson was wayne whitman no oh (laughs) sorry worked at again worked at kc aviation worked at the airport in the early 80s, where my dad has worked for 40 years, 40 plus years. So right? neither you nor your wife were part of a love triangle, mm-hmm. and your dad's not a murderer. Okay. No, right. So I guess I would have known, so maybe. dad worked with this guy, 
and they were going, kind of the detectives were kind of after his body was found, Starkey Swenson's body was found. They went to kind of retrace their steps. They kind of reopened the investigation. So they were going back and interviewing people that knew this guy. And my dad was on that list. So they came and they went to his house and they talked to him for 15 or 20 minutes before that. It's because my dad knew this guy and he, you know, they, they would make... They would make jokes that he like buried him underneath the, the runway and stuff at the airport. That's so. kind of a nice segue into what we're talking about today, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Not not in a not in a pulp vat, but in a and not as under not as under funny as what you were just talking about either. That's my little my little foray into a cold case in uh, North. I'm glad your Wisconsin. dad wasn't involved in yeah, the way no, we're going to no, talk no, about. At least not that I know of. He wasn't. Mm. So, you know. Well, it's always the quiet ones. So Tom Monfiles, this was a massive story in this area when we were, um, I was going to say when we were growing up, we were already pretty much grown up by this point. This happened in, well, the trial happened in 95. So we were already out of high school by now. And Mickey, you were in college in Green Bay when this happened, I believe. But it became national news, obviously, too. Well, and it was going on the same time as as OJ. So this this was- A verdict even came out during- the two big, uh, you know, court cases in America at this time were OJ. Obviously, OJ quite Maybe a bit overshadowed. Yeah, yeah, a little more people don't remember that today. But there this, was no white Bronco in this case no. that we're talking about. Um, but this, this was a massive story here. And and you know, I never really. Obviously, we knew about it. I knew about it. You can't grow up in this area. Oh, or, we didn't have any choice but to hear right, about it. Which which does lead to some. It wasn't the OJ case, but it was national news. Sure, definitely big story. And if it wasn't for OJ, I mean, this this would have probably would be a, a nationally known case definitely. still today, right? Um, you know, Tom Monfiles. Uh, you know, I never really paid much attention to it though when it was happening here, and for because you heard so much, you got well, sick of it. You know, we were 17, 18 years old. Right, we know? had a so, few other things going. Sure, on, yeah. you know, but you know, Tom Monfiles again. If you're not familiar with an employee at James River Paper Company in Green Bay who was found dead in the bottom of a pulp vat with a 50 pound weight tied around his neck. So then, you know, I always just thought that, you know, obviously guys in the mill did this to him. They caught the guys. Those guys were known as the quote Monfile six and those guys were cooked. Right. And I just, there wasn't much more to it than that. It seems so cut and dry the way, right. they, the way they portrayed it. Not so much. No. Right. So what, you know, we'll obviously this is one of the reasons why I like what we do because, you know, here we are 30 years after this went down, 30 years after we remember hearing about this and really not paying a whole lot of attention to it. And then we look into it much more closer now. And I have a completely new perspective on it. And know? there's a lot more to Tom Monfiles himself that I never knew about that they didn't necessarily divulge or that I didn't pay attention to. And right. there's a lot more to the Monfile 6 and whether they were guilty or not and who they were. We'll, we'll, we'll break all this down tonight and get, get into some of that stuff and it. You know, some of this stuff kind of really doesn't make you feel good. You know, it make you know, there's some, a lot of which is normally what we're trying stuff. to do in Badger Bazaar. Well, I guess, right? We feel good and all that stuff, but sometimes we go to the dark and twisted. So there's just there's a lot of questions even now, remaining 30 years later about this case. You know, and and this is, and I would say recently we've had a lot of requests about this case, which is why we're um, doing it in the first place, to be honest. Right, and and now late last year. 2022 was the 30 year anniversary of this November of 2022. So there were a lot of news articles that came out then about this case. 
And there's also a documentary about it, which came out just now, came out in April. It's called Beyond Human Nature. Um, you can rent it right now on Amazon. I did. It's, you can rent it for like four bucks and watch it. It's really, it does a really good job in summarizing the case. If you're not totally familiar with everything that went on there, it's not opinionated at all, really. I mean, it's pretty straight down the middle. It represents both sides. Just facts. Really, really well. And uh, both big players on both sides are, take part in it and, and are interviewed. And I, I just think it does a really good job in uh, telling the story. I think it left some meat on the bone, though. I think there were a lot of questions that, that were not asked in this documentary. But, you know, that's, for, you know, for the most part, it was really, really well done. It's done by a local guy. I think he's in Madison. Um, so well worth a watch if you're interested in it. Again, it's called Beyond Human Nature. And we'll go into a few other things that were, like, books that were a result of all this. Also, the mill where this happened, James River Paper Company, uh, which actually is now Georgia Pacific, is closing this year. It's pretty much already closed, really, after 120 years. There's one machine still operating. So, and that's obviously part of a bigger story that's been a cultural shift in this area. Obviously, you live in Wisconsin. You understand paper companies kind of ran this state for much of the 20th century. 122 years old, yeah. this building was. And, you know, really growing up, our how many friends did we have where their dads worked in paper mills? I mean, that's what you did. One of right? the, the group I... I recently went to a Shinedown concert, and then I went to a Brewer game. All those guys met each other. I, I was roommates with one of the guys in college, and they all met each other at play, and they're all gone from there since. But, yeah, so Georgia Pacific brought a group of my, one group of my friends all together. So, And, you know, th- this is what people did, you know, in the 80s and ni- 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, in you know, really the Fox Cities is you worked at paper mills, and it you got into a paper mill, you were there for, I mean, I, I wrote in my book, Lost Fox Cities, there's a whole chapter about the rise and fall of the paper industry. I mean, which, you know, here in the Fox Cities, it was the most prominent industry. Uh, here, it was the most prominent paper industry in the world, right here in the Fox Cities. So lots of paper mill jobs, lots of people did that for a living. It was a very good job, good benefits, good retirement, right? I, mean, I that's currently... With what I do, as we've discussed, I currently work at a place that our major contributor is paper facilities. So they're actually building more in this country now with Amazon and all the packaging uh, that that we do now. Paper, you'd think it was a dying industry, but there's a lot of paper that you don't even, you just take for granted. I work at a place that's, our biggest jobs are billion-dollar jobs, and it's working with places that are building paper facilities. So it's it's weird how it comes around full circle. So let's go over this a little bit and let's uh, let's break a lot of the specifics of this case down because, I mean, this was certainly a learning experience uh, for me as well. November 10th, 1992, that's when this all starts. November 10th, 1992, 4.45 a.m. Call comes into Green Bay Police Department. It's a man. He says he wants to remain anonymous, right? He says he's an employee of the James River Paper Company. And he's calling to report a theft that is happening on the property that day. We now know that this is Tom Monfiles, who is making the call. Tom Monfiles calls the Green Bay Police Department, says, I want to remain anonymous. I'm an employee at James River, and I know there's going to be a theft at the paper mill today. So he reports that another employee, Keith Kutzka, is going to steal 10 to 15 feet of electrical cable from the mill. Um, so Kutzka is going to be, in, in Monfile's words, he's going to be stealing. 
10 to 15 feet of electrical cable from the mill. And he says on the call that it's, quote, quite expensive, unquote. Now, this is not unusual. Employees often took things like this, especially if it was waste, uh, home. And you pretty much just had to have approval from the company to do it. You, f- you filled out a scrap pass is what, what they it called was. it. Yep, that's what it was. So, you, you know, if there's, some, if there's some scrap metal or scrap wiring or something, you know, something that's going to be thrown out anyways, and you want to take it home and use it for your own purposes, you just have to tell the mill that you're going to do it, right? So why Kutzka did not do this, who knows? Probably lend some credence to Monfile's statement that it was quite expensive, and maybe he didn't think the mill was going to let him do that. Who knows? He was actually a union rep, so maybe he considered himself a little higher up and didn't and could bypass some of this stuff, too, in his right. mentality. So on the call, the dispatcher at the police department asked Monfiles how come he's not telling his security. Like, you, you know, she's like, you have security there at James River. Why are you not alerting your security? And he says, well, I want you to do that. I want to remain anonymous. If I tell security, they're obviously they're going to, somebody's going to know it's me. And he's afraid that Keith Kutzka is going to get a hold of his name somehow. So he wants the dispatcher to call James River Security and alert them to this theft that's going to be happening by Kutzka. And he also says on the call that Kutzka is, quote, known to be violent, unquote. Now, it should be said that Keith Kutzka has no criminal record at all. There's no record of him being violent anywhere. No criminal record, not even legal trouble that we know of with this guy, right? So where the notion that Keith Kutzka is known to be violent, not sure where that comes from. It sounds like it was Monfiles just kind of assuming that himself. It certainly seems that way. Monfiles maybe being, you know, is this is, is this displaying some kind of paranoia? So the dispatcher does what Monfiles asks her to do. She calls James River Security and tells them about the theft. No written report was made by the dispatcher on this call. You might see a theme here. Now, there was, according to them, that there was no written report because no officers were sent to the facility, and the call was recorded. So maybe there didn't need to be a written report with that particular call? Per police policy, the call was still recorded, but they don't necessarily have a written report. So Kutzka, at the end of his shift that day, is stopped by security as he's walking out. Right, they all come in a line and they're badging out the door after his shift and security stops him. Says that they want to check his bag. He says no. Security says we got to we need to ch- we need to check your bag. Kutzka refuses again. The no part is the part that's this big red flag. And and he starts Why did you do that? He starts bolting out to the car. Right? So he he totally refutes. He makes security. himself guilty right there. Sure, he does. Sure. Just a bad decision. So because of this, because he refutes security, uh, and he doesn't let them search his bag when he uh, when they ask for it. He gets a five day suspension. Right, right there, he gets a five day. And and things were more lenient back then than they are now. So the issue is now that he knows somebody narked, right? Now he knows somebody at the mill told on me. You know, you told on me. <laughs> you told on me. But but again, so I, you know, obviously they were talking about this beforehand. Because Monfiles knew he was going to do this. So he's talking openly about taking this. And again, people would do this all the time. So Kutzka's kind of like, what, what, what's the Why deal? Why is this situation exactly. being called out? Like, what, what, am I, what did I do that was so more egregious than what other people are doing? So two days later, Monfiles again calls the police. He talks with Detective Denise Cervais. And again, Monfiles 
tells the detective what's going on, and again expresses fear of Kutzka finding out it was him. Right. So now he's he's making it a point that he remains anonymous because he's for some reason is afraid of Keith Kutzka and again says he's violent. He calls Kutzka quote crazy, unquote, and says he's like a quote biker type, unquote. Again, no criminal record with this guy at all. No record of him being part of a just biker jumping to gang. conclusions about who he is, kinda sounds like. So the detective Surveys tells him again, there's no way that tape is ever getting out. Don't worry about it. Apparently that detective says, quote, no way in hell, unquote, is that tape getting out. There was a lot of empty promises made throughout this process, it sounds like. But again, that detective makes no written report about the Monfiles call. No written report, actually, until Monfiles turns up dead. So now while Kutzka is on suspension, well, he's, he's doing things too. He's talking to his union rep about what recourse he has against the person that reported him. Right? Not to kill him, but to maybe, you know, potentially file union charges against that person. So now this, presumably this would be, you know, union member on union member harassment. The speculation is that uh, Kutzka thought that this was an intimidation tactic because there was a large union vote coming up. And what this vote was, it was going to be a change of hours. So it would affect them, right? It would affect them big time if it changes your work hours. They were thinking about going to four 12-hour days. And Kutzka was one of the members of the union who was heavily railing against the change. He wanted to keep it how it was. And there was speculation that Monfiles himself kind of wanted to remove Kutzka from the situation, which is why he wanted him to get in trouble so that that vote couldn't be put in place and and that couldn't happen. So now November 17th, Kutzka comes back to work. His suspension's over, right? And he's telling everybody at the mill that he's going to find out who reported him. Because security told him, or excuse me, human resources told him that somebody called the police and reported him. Human resources did not know who that person was. They didn't know it was Monfiles either. But human resources did tell Kutzka that somebody called the police and turned him in. So now Kutzka's telling everybody at the mill that will listen, I'm going to find out who did this. And he, in fact, even made a call to the police asking for the informant. Right. He's not hiding it. He's being very open about it. I'm going to find out which one of you rats turned me in for this. Which is a little intimidating. So if you find the guy threatening or intimidating to begin with, and now he's saying this stuff out loud to all the other workers, if you're the guy who called him in, you're a little afraid. Sure. And Monfiles again calls the police for, what, the third or fourth time, right? And he talks to two, at least two other officers. It was after 10 at night that he called this last time. Lieutenant Kenneth Latour and James Lampkin. And again, he's reassured that that tape will never get out. And he makes references. He's saying that he's afraid Kutzka might take him out. Quote, unquote, take him out. He says something to the effect of, you know, if I don't come home one night. Again, this guy has no criminal record. I don't, this sounds, it's almost like he's setting this up. He's a little paranoid. And he even, when he calls the police, he says, can I speak to the highest guy up? So it's almost like he's made this story up in his mind. Granted, we don't know that this isn't the truth, but he's the one who called this guy in who doesn't have any prior records. So it's, it's almost like he feels guilty and he's making up a story in his head at this point. So now these two officers, again, as I said before, they reassure him again that tape is never getting out. James Lampkin even says to him that he knows the tape will never get out because it has to go through his desk first, and he knows that tape will never get out. And again, those two officers never make a written report 
about the call. There's the theme I was talking about. Until Mon Files turns up dead. Then, of course, you know, they're scrambling. Now, as I mentioned before, last November was the 30th anniversary of this death at the paper mill. So there were... There were a number of articles that were written about it. Kelly Arsenault, who was a, re- a reporter from the, for the Green Bay Press Gazette, wrote a mo- probably the, the most comprehensive article I've ever read on this. And we, obviously, we've been following this case for 30 years, right? I mean, I've never read a not more... Not following, well, but we've not, heard not, about sure, it. Sure, not this specific, but I've never read a more comprehensive article about this case than what Kelly Arsenault did um, in November of last year. Now, she writes in this article... After Monfiles calls and talks to those those two officers that, again, reassure him that that's not coming out, that that tape will never be released. She writes, quote, on November 19th, Kutzka called Mason, that's Lieutenant Michael Mason of the Green Bay Police Department, who located the recording and listened to it. Mason found no report written about Monfiles calls because no one at the time had written any report about it. At any point. Still uncertain whether he could release the tape to Kutzko, Mason spoke with both an office worker and an assistant city attorney. From the recording itself, Mason did not hear any promise that the caller would be kept anonymous, and he did not know about the other calls Monfiles made to the department. Although he was not the person at the department who typically releases records, Mason called Kutzko that afternoon and said he could have a copy of the call if he brought in $5 and a blank cassette tape. At the mill... Kutzka told everybody that he's picking up the tape later that afternoon. This seemed to further frighten Monfiles. At 10 a.m. on November 20th, Monfiles again called Lampkin, who told him again the tape would not be released. Lampkin transferred the call to Deputy Chief of Detectives James Taylor, who also spoke to Monfiles and assured him the tape would not be released. But Taylor took no actions to ensure the tape did not get released, According to court documents, the tape was, in fact, sitting on a desk in the records office about 30 feet from Taylor, awaiting release at the time he assured Monfiles that Kutzka would not get a hold of the recording. Monfiles also calls a Brown County assistant DA. He, I mean, he calls, he's calling the DA. He's calling everybody at the police department. I want the highest guy up, he says. Now he's calling the DA. So he's freaked out. So the assistant DA calls Green Bay Police Department and speaks with James Taylor as well. And Taylor tells the DA that it's not going to be released. District Attorney Pat hit. Taylor checked the computer system only for reports of Monfile's November 10th phone call. Finding no report, again, because nobody wrote a written report about this, he, quote, just let it go. And Hit believed there were grounds to refuse release of the tape under Wisconsin's open records law. Kutzka picked up the tape from the police department that evening with $5 and a blank cassette. And investigators later said this was the mistake that cost Monfiles his life. So Kutzka gets the tape and he brings the tape and a tape player to work the next morning, right? Now we're November 21st, 1992. It's a Saturday. Around 7 a.m., Kutzka goes into the control room in the mill where Tom Monfiles is working with another employee, Mike Piaskowski. Kutzka then sets the tape player down, puts the tape inside, points at Mike Piaskowski and says, name that tune, and plays the tape. He literally said those words. And obviously, Tom Monfiles' voice is easily heard on the tape. Monfiles obviously knows he's been found out, and he admits he made the call. So that morning, Keith Kutzka's running around the mill with the tape, and he plays it for anybody 
that is going to listen to him, right? He plays it for about 20 people. The control room here, that control room, right? He's trying to get everybody riled up. He's stirring up anger throughout the group. Yep. Like, look, look what this guy did to me, right? Now, included in those 20 people. These names are important. Were Mike Piaskowski, Ray Moore, Dale Baston, Michael Johnson, Michael Hearn. There's a lot of Mikes. That's my name. That's No, you're Mickey. Oh, you that's are right. forever yeah. Mickey. Right. And my dad is Michael. You're right. I'm only Michael when I'm yelled at by my parents. Who, along with Keith Kutzka, would become known as the Monfiles 6. So now at around 7.30, Monfiles leaves the control room, and he does a, a turnover at 7.34. Now, a turnover is one of his functions as a job. It's basically taking a, a, a roll of paper off of a paper machine and, and replacing it with a new one. But before that, Kutzka actually implied to Monfiles theft accusation was false, and he told Ray Moore and Michael Hearn to, quote, give Monfiles some shit, unquote, for snitching. So that's where the stories begin. Now, Monfiles does the turnover at 734. We know he does the turnover at 734. He signs off on it, and the numerous eyewitnesses see him do the 734 turnover. That's the typical schedule for something like that. Tom Monfiles is never seen alive again. At around 7.45 or so, Kutzka and Piaskowski notice that they don't know where Monfiles is. He's not at his workstation. He's not in, you know, Coop 7. Uh, So according to court records, Kutzka tells Piaskowski to go alert a supervisor that Monfiles is missing. Now, they're trying to get him in trouble. Coop 7 is, for the record, it's the control room for paper machine number 7. So anytime we refer to a coop and we'll refer to coop number 9, that's the control room per paper machine. So they go alert a supervisor that he's not at his workstation, which is, you're not supposed to do that. They're trying to get Monfiles in trouble. They know that he called in Kutzka. Kutzka's going to look to file a grievance against him with the union. They're trying to get him in trouble, and they're, you know, by, by alerting a supervisor that he's not at the workstation. Their ultimate goal seems to be they want to get him kicked out of the union. And what happens if you get kicked out of a union in a paper mill? You lose your job. Because you have to be union to work at these papers. Right, or you're just, you're ostracized completely. So he's he's missing, right? We don't, nobody knows where Monfiles is now. So a search ensues. Now conventional wisdom says that he never left the, left the mill. His car is still in the parking lot the whole time. Clothes still hanging in his locker. Nobody knows where he is. If they call his wife or she doesn't know where he is, she actually drives up to their cottage to see if he, you know, maybe hiding out up there, right? And he's he's not there. Because he never showed up at home or other frequented locations. So after, you know, a day of this, 24, 30 hours or whatever it would be of looking for him everywhere inside that mill, they can't find him. Police basically go to the last resort, drain the pulp vats. 36 hours later, after 8 p.m. on November 22nd, supervisor ordered employees to drain the massive toxic pulp vat. Employees worked with police to do so, and the vat itself was a two-story tank containing mud-like mixture, including water, chemicals, and paper pulp. Large propellers at the bottom moved constantly, stirring the mixture, and they found a body of 35-year-old Tom Monfiles floating, anchored to the bottom with jump rope. So it's like this its like this huge concrete tank of, like, milky, chunky Mud-like substance, fixture. right? It's, it looks like oatmeal, kind of. I mean, if you can... 
<laughs> Imagine that. It's a disgusting. Right? It's not see-through. It's just a thick, yeah. chunky substance. So they drain this thing, and as Mickey said, there's the badly damaged, badly decomposed already body of Tom Monfiles. Bruised up for multiple, possibly multiple reasons could have caused it. This jump rope was actually tied around his neck, attached to two PVC pipes, creating a 49-pound weight. Evidently, the pipes were actually constructed by Monfiles himself for his exercise breaks during his workday. The body was partially decomposed due to to the chemicals and to the propellers. So there's going to be a lot of speculation as to what caused the damage to his body, and this is definitely part of the reason. Now, even very early on, and this kind of loses, uh, they lose sight of this pretty quickly, but very early on, like that day, suicide was looked at. Even the, the Green Bay Press-Gazette reported the next day when they're describing the body, it says that the weight was, quote, fastened loosely around Monfile's neck with a five-foot rope. Police plan to check with experts soon to determine whether it was the sort of knot Monfile's could have tied himself, unquote. That's a big piece of information right there. They're checking to see if they were the type of knots Monfiled could have tied himself because they were not normal knots. They were very specialized knots. So we'll come back to that juicy little tidbit a little later on. But for now, you know, on a, several weeks later, on, a, on December 9th, Monfiled's death is ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. An autopsy apparently found that the body had injuries that occurred before Monfiles went into the vat, and he dies of suffocation after ingesting the pulp vat. So they know he's alive when he went into the pulp vat, and he died basically of suffocation. He, he's he alive, whether he's conscious or not is sure. Yes, debate. he was breathing because he breathed the pulp in, which suffocated him. He basically drowned. And with the propeller being down there, there was no chance of survival. And, you know, it's interesting because, again, the Green Bay Press-Gazette reports that the body was badly damaged due to the propeller at the bottom of the vat. But that changes in the autopsy. And they say that the body was was suffered injuries before it went into the vat. So why did that change, and how could they possibly know that? So again, it comes down to investigation and trial. Well, mostly trial and, and people saying certain things and evidence or lack thereof. So in any event, we now have a murder investigation on our hands, right? But it should be, as Mickey said earlier, it should be pretty cut and dry, right? This is a closed space. Only a limited amount of people have access to that area. It's not like anybody off the street did this, right? And these people know each other. They work together every day. Generation after generation, these people have known each other. This is a kind of job. And there are people that were obviously mad at Tom Monfiles. Right. So, so this should be pretty, a pretty cut and dry murder case if this is a murder, right? It should be a slam dunk. And that's the picture they painted even on the news, it seemed like. That's what I remember hearing when I actually did pay attention. But for two and a half years, nothing. It took almost three years for all this to finally come to fruition. For two and a half years, there's no arrests. Not Keith Kutzka, not Mike Piaskowski, nothing. There's no evidence of any murder that they can find that happened in that mill. But, you know, here we are again with most true crime cases. We hear so much about everybody else, the people that go to trial, all the suspects, all the theories and so forth, right? But we don't hear much about the victim, Tom Monfiles. So who was Tom Monfiles? Born Thomas John Monfiles on April 9th, 1957 in Green Bay to Edwin Felix Monfiles and former Joan Husek 
He had two brothers, Mark and Kyle, and three sisters, Lois, Yvonne, and Bobby Joe. He graduated from Green Bay East High School. After that, he served four years in the U.S. Coast Guard. He was actually even named Coast Guardsman of the Year in 1978, and he even received a congressional award for doing so. Once he unenlisted from the Coast Guard, he married Susan Kogel on August 12, 1980 in Pleasantville, New Jersey. She then became Susan Monfiles, obviously. They had two children together, one daughter, Teresa, age 11 at the time of the death, and one son, John, age 9 at the time of the death. He had a job in construction for a short time before taking his job at James River Mill which we now are calling Georgia Pacific. He worked at the mill since 1983, and even his father, Ed, and also uncle worked there because this is a generational-type job. Ed had just recently retired in, in January of 1992 when this all went down, and Tom knew a lot of people at the mill and was known as a bit of a social butterfly. So this wasn't a shy guy. He was an outgoing guy. He was somebody that was well-known. And, and he was probably going to be a lifer at that mill, right? Again, just like his uncle right, and father. Right. That's That's... This is a generational type job. Generation after generation, these people knew each other and in good, and out. You made a good living. He owned four houses. Yeah. He owned four houses plus a cottage. He's 35 and, years old. And he was well known. And like you said, he was well respected until he decided to, you know, be a bit of a whistleblower, it sounds like. And now he winds up at the bottom of a pulp vat at his workplace with a 50 pound weight around his neck. And the police can't crack this thing. There doesn't seem to, there's no blood anywhere. Evidence is impossible. They illumine all the place, right? Nothing. No weapon. Nobody's talking. Right? Nobody, no, nobody's pointing a finger at anybody else. And that's, that's something to be said for, these people are like family, whether that's good or bad. I mean, we love our family. We don't always like them. So these people, as we've said, generational, they've known each other for decades and they know everything about each other. So they either have their backs or they don't. And that's that, that's a big part of this whole situation. Now, police feel that there must have been a confrontation of some kind, right? Again, he had injuries that they say occurred before he went in that pulp bat. There's got to be a confrontation somewhere, right? But there's no evidence of it. Again, no blood, no weapon, no eyewitnesses. So is, is this just union members protecting their own? And they did a heck of a job cleaning up the situation if they if that was the situation. They're protecting their own even in murder? But for many, many months, this investigation goes nowhere. Keith Kutzko is eventually fired in 1993 by James River for his antics of that morning. You know, intimidating Monfiles with the tape saying, I'm going to find out who did this and, you know, so, so on and so forth. Um, they, get, they, they get rid of Kutzko. They call it um, intimidation. Also in August 1993, James River offers a $25,000 reward for anybody to come forward. Nothing. They up it to 35000 This is in 1993. What is that? 75000 100000 today? You know, no, nothing. Nobody comes forward. Nobody says a word. They're all saying they don't know what happened, right? Which maybe they're covering up or maybe they don't maybe they're all innocent and maybe something else happened other than what we came to know if you were actually you know paying attention at the time the biggest development in this case to this point comes in january of 1994 when detective randy winkler becomes the lead investigator on the case which really has gone nowhere since monfiles is found dead in the vat two and a half years this case has gone nowhere so now randy winkler was already an investigator on this case, which never had really had a lead, right? It just it seemed to be people were working on it, 
people were kind of doing their own thing, but there was no person kind of taking the reins on the investigation until Randy Winkler in January of 94 says, I'm going to lead this investigation. Now, Winkler got quite a reputation after this case. Numerous people who were interviewed by him complained about him, not just one or two, but many, many people who really had no dog in this fight, um, complained, testified about his tactics, trying to coerce statements, changing statements, falsifying documents. And a lot of this he was just flat caught on because it came up in trial, right? But it was able to be brushed over by the DA, and we'll get into a lot of that uh, in a bit here. But the, the guy certainly had some ethical issues, which we'll talk about. And, you know, the Green Bay Press Gazette did report on that, and they reported at the time that the DA, John Zakowski, that was something that he was concerned about. But for this case alone, Winkler himself said he conducted more than 500 interviews at this point that he took over the lead investigator job. So while he had not so diligent and legal tactics, he was doing his due diligence as far as getting the work done and trying to get to the bottom of it, whether people understand or agree with his tactics or not. Well, that you know, there were stories that he would threaten witnesses who didn't give him the story that he wanted. He would, Oh, I'm not saying he was right. necessarily right. doing it right, but you know, we watch movies and TVs and that's that's how the badass cop sure, does it. Sure. But Maybe he, he considered know, himself that. He would threaten jobs. Doesn't he mean would, it's right. He would take statements which would be signed by witnesses at the time of the statement and then they would he would show up at their house the next day and say, "Oh, you forgot to sign your sign your statement." And they would read it, and it would be completely changed from what they initially said. Even in the Walter Ellis case, we talked about how people can be intimidated to the point where they admit things that just aren't the truth. So this tactic doesn't necessarily work to bring out the truth. It just brings out admittance, whether it's based on reality or not. He went after people who weren't even working at the mill that day saying that, oh, maybe you snuck in and did this. And he's just using all these fear tactics to try to get people to break. But no, nobody did. And it doesn't mean you're going to get the truth even if they do break. That's the, People might admit to things that just aren't the case, as we mentioned. Now, Winkler had his own ideas of what must have taken place. right? So these, these six guys, and there were more in that area, obviously, but these are the six guys whose names kept coming up being in that area in all the interviews, right? These six guys called the Monfile Six. And according to Winkler's theory, that they must have confronted Tom Monfiles, somebody hits him in the head with something, who knows what. That Apparently that's not important. By the drinking fountain again. Uh, they beat him up. He's lying there bleeding. And in the documentary that I watched, this, this is even the DH, John Zakowski says this, and he... He kind of talks about it, and he says, Monfiles is laying there, and the six are standing over him, and he's bleeding. There's no blood anywhere ever found, right? So he kind of contradicts his own self in that testimony. Now, as Mickey said, this happens uh, by a water fountain, and it's known as the, quote, bubbler confrontation. And this was supposed to be on his way towards that turnover time at 7.34 that morning. So according to Winkler, this confrontation happens right by that bubbler in between machines seven and nine. We call it a bubbler. Other states call it a drinking right. fountain. That's not a debate we're going to have For right Badger now. Bazaar, it is a bubbler. It's a bubbler. Right. Now, some of these guys didn't even work in this part of the mill. Ray Moore, for example, worked in a completely different area. He didn't know these guys, right? The others pretty much knew each other. Ray Moore didn't know these guys. He just happened to be in that area kind of helping out for something. 
So a lot of these guys, or some of these guys, didn't necessarily know each other well. So uh, according to, to, to Winkler, they, they beat up Monfiles until he's virtually unconscious, right? And then they throw him in the pulp vat, where they know he would eventually be found. It's not acid, no. right? It's not an acid vat. It's a pulp vat. You're going to find the body. And we're not eventually. saying these people are, you know, professional criminals, but you'd think you'd be smarter than that. And then they go on with their day. This happened at 7.30 in the morning. They worked a full shift. Like, well, nothing, like nothing happened. So, you know, they, they throw him in the pulp vat and, and they, work, they work their shifts like nothing happened. They just killed a guy. These aren't. These well, are, if you do this every day, man, it's just like it's, sure. just, it's just more stuff in the vet. It's just you're making paper. They're, these aren't mobsters. These, no. these are paper mill workers. These aren't no gangsters. previous history. And again, we're 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 trying to give the facts, but a lot of these facts sound just circumstantial, as we've mentioned in other podcast and other episodes. Circumstantial. It's just evidence. There's no proof. There's no stains. There's no anything. So this right, and again, this this, and I keep saying that Winkler came up with this, and I say that he comes up with this concoction of this bubbler confrontation because it's never told to him by anybody. Nobody ever admits to any bubbler confrontation. Nobody says this happened. There's no eyewitnesses to it. There's no blood. There's no weapon. There is a table in the area that people would sit and smoke at, like a break table. It's just funny talking about people smoking inside of buildings. Yeah, it's been years. <laughs> it sounds so, right. so archaic. But there was a table in the area that people were sitting at smoking that is in full view of this area. None of them said they saw anything. And again, even the people who were informants or coming forward, you know, just to either save their butts or just to be heroes, nobody ever mentioned this. There were stories that were told, as we'll get into, this was never mentioned by anyone other than Winkler. So he, he comes up with the story that there must be some kind of a confrontation here. So he has to find people that are going to corroborate this, right? Now, I know he deduces this from what he believes is logic, right? He believes that they threw Monfiles in the vat, so he believes that they had to have beaten them up at some point. But the evidence doesn't show any of that. So nobody tells him this bubbler confrontation happened. He made it up. And now he tries to go back and finds people to try to corroborate that. Now, in March of 1993, five or six months after Monfiles is found, a secret John Doe hearing was held. And, you know, a John Doe hearing is, is held to determine if a crime had been committed. So there is still a question five or six months later, even after the medical examiner said there was a homicide here, they're still holding John Doe hearings to determine if there was indeed a crime. And there's never anybody named John Doe there. That's the part that really pisses me off. Why don't they off. just call the Tom Monfiles here? Right. That's who's involved here. <laughs> this John Doe guy, just he keeps popping up, and I'm tired of it. Now, 12 people did testify at this John Doe hearing, one of whom was an employee at the mill named David Weiner. Sounds like kind of lived up to his name. Now, David Weiner apparently didn't have much to say at this hearing, or really anybody else because nothing happened again for another two years but two months later in may of 1993 david weiner calls green bay police department this is two months after the john doe hearing which he says nothing right six months after monfile's death he calls green bay police department and says that he now has a recollection of a quote suppressed memory unquote now which, he, that happens sure i mean we we 
just when you're thinking about something, you oh my god, I remember that. I mean, right. it, especially if there's alcohol involved, and there always was. So now he doesn't know why he didn't remember this before, but while he's at exactly. a wedding reception, as you say, when alcohol is involved, right? When he's at a wedding reception, uh, this memory just came back to him for some reason of Dale Baston and Michael Johnson carrying something long, about six feet, over by the pulp vat on the day Mon Files goes missing. Now apparently. This was just good enough for the prosecution, right? It went right into evidence. <laughs> no apparent questions about how that would be. How did this repressed memory come back, or suppressed memory? Why do you recall it now, right? Nothing. It's now, now he's an eyewitness. He remembers right? what they were walking six feet apart, hunched over, and carrying something between them, which you would assume is a body, most likely in carpeting or something like that, rolled up. Well, are you though? Are when you see that, are you are you are you thinking that? Well, I mean, if that's the memory you're told to have, or I mean, that you're suddenly having, <laughs> if that was suddenly planted in your head, yeah, right. right. I mean, oh, now I remember that they they were I, because it's interesting. While he gave the statement, it's strange how it came up. He says at six thirty in the morning, he saw them carrying something long towards the vat. But at trial, six feet apart. That's the, that's kind of the key, and this is. Pre-COVID, but at so that wasn't right. a necessity at that time. But at trial, that six thirty in the morning becomes about seven thirty-five, and that something long becomes a body. Completely right. changed the state. Well, six feet could be a body, but yeah, and and as I was described, six feet apart, hunched over, carrying some. So it was obviously something heavy. It was obviously covered up in like some kind of wrap, and. They were six feet apart, so it was described differently at different times, but it is all awfully circumstantial or coincidental, depending on your point of view. The other piece of the puzzle here for the prosecution theory... We're not trying to jump to conclusions just yet, though. We're trying to give the facts. the The other major piece of the puzzle for the prosecution's theory here was testimony from a guy named Brian Kellner who was a good friend of Kutzka. He also worked at the mill, but he wasn't there that day. This this is going to be the big break that Randy Winkler needs. So after a two-day-long interrogation by Randy Winkler in November 1994, Kellner signs a statement saying that one night earlier that summer in July, I think it was July 4th weekend, he's out drinking with Keith Kutzka at the Fox Den bar up towards Ocanto. Uh, and now, according to Kellner here, Kutzka drunkenly performs a reenactment of Monfiles being beaten, using the bar owners and others in attendance as actors. Kellner claims he had consumed around 12 beers while Kutzka has 40. So now... Probably a few hours. So now there's seemingly this drunken barroom confession, right? Complete with reenactments using the bar tenders, the bar owners, and others as actors. Sounds like a musical. You know, with alcohol involved. So on April 12th, 1995, Keith Kutzka, Dale Baston, Mike Piaskowski, Michael Hearn, Michael Johnson, and Ray Moore are all arrested and charged with first-degree murder. It was said that Kutzka once dropped a tool on Kellner's head while they were working together, and Kutzka then made a joke about Kellner having a quote-unquote Monfiles lump, and later on there was an autopsy that revealed that Monfiles actually did have 
such wound on his head. So there was a tie in there as far as circumstantial evidence. The other interesting thing is with Green Bay, uh, how they do things when you give statements is you give the statement, but it's not written by you. It's written up by the detective. So you say your statement, Winkler would then write this up and give it to you to sign. And that's when we say a lot of those things were falsified and changed. That's what it was. Winkler would go back and change these things and then try to have the witness who gave the statement re-sign it without kind of knowing that the changes were made in there. So their trial begins in September of 1995, and they have a joint trial. September 27th. All six of them are, are tried together. Like, what, what is this? And I, I mean, this is probably the thing that bothers me the most about this stuff is... The disorganization? So the DA says they requested this to this this joint trial to obviously save taxpayer money, right? They want to save taxpayer money, and they want to save resources. And they don't want to put Monfile's family through six trials, okay, right? And also to this point, there was so much publicity, especially in the Green Bay area for obvious reasons. They, they, were, they actually brought an impartial jury in from Racine just so that at least that could be a credible part of the whole situation. Yeah. They... Try all six of them, not because they want to save taxpayer money, but they want to confuse the jury. They want to muddy up everything. All the jury, you know, all six defendants had their own lawyers. So every day in court, you have six defendants. You have like 12 lawyers there. Plus you have the prosecution. You have 30 people there. Chaos and it's, constant of talking. Course, just utter chaos. People, It's like a filibuster. Some of, the, some of the jurors, one of the jurors said afterwards that they, you know, it, at least for the first few weeks of the trial, they didn't know who each other was. They couldn't, they couldn't ascertain one defendant from the other. They did this to muddy everything up. And you know, in the, in the documentary that I talked about, Beyond Human Nature, they, they talk about this. And the, the, the guy making the uh, documentary asks both Randy Winkler and John Sikowski about this. And he's, because there's no way they're getting convictions on, on any of these six if they're tried alone. And he asked them straight up. He asked Randy Winkler, are you getting convictions if these guys are tried alone? And he says no. He comes flat out and says no. He asks Zakowski, are you getting convictions if these guys are tried alone? And Zakowski struggles really, really hard with that. You know, he tries to gloss over it and, and say... Uh, you, you know, yeah, they, you know, he struggles quite a bit. And this is where, and this is kind of disappointing as me, somebody who grew up here, you see John Zakowski on TV every single day. He's the DA in Brown County. He's always the guy out to get the bad guys, right? And when you see him now, 30 years later, and he's now a judge in Brown County, of course he is, right? He's now a judge in Brown County. But when you see him ask that question, are you getting convictions of these guys? If you try them separately, he can't answer that question without really, really, really struggling. And I don't just, mean to always be an apologist because I, <laughs> if anyone knows me, I am not. To some degree, the law is broken and it's it's not easy for justice to be served. And it takes a long, long time, as we know, when the government's involved in anything. So to some degree, those are built-in excuses. But at some point, it's like these these public officials, it's almost like their credentials and their scruples and their principles are kind of all just forgotten because, you know, whether they're trying to represent the law or not, it's just they get lost in it. So it is a little bit disappointing at times. And that, 
maybe that's the whole point of it. To some degree, you need to understand that these people are in a position where it's not always it's anything but easy. But on the other hand, justice should be upheld, and that's the whole point. You got you got the life of one guy who's over, and you got the lives of six other guys in your hands. Right. And what, you do something, in my opinion, intentionally to try to get convictions when you know... Whether it's true or not. And you, you know you're not getting convictions when these guys are tried separately. And you can tell in that documentary when you watch that, that even he knows that this that is not his finest well, moment. And especially not if his the, finest moment. Especially if the people who are being tried and convicted are not necessarily the culprits. That That's, that's the problem with our justice system. So the, the, the trial begins. All six are in the same courtroom. All their lawyers are in there. All the prosecution team is in there. It's utter chaos. As Mickey said, the jury was from Racine County. They're sequestered. It's like a filibuster. It's just, it's just basically nonstop talk just to confuse anybody involved who's trying to make a decision. So we have, you know, we had to trial. And what evidence does the prosecution have here after a three-year investigation? In a closed setting, what evidence does the prosecution here after three years? They have nothing. <laughs> evidence is not a word at this point. They have nothing, and they even say this. They tell the jury this in their opening statement. <laughs> Those words are literally spoken. They tell the jury, quote, if details are extremely important to you, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> There are gaps. That's crazy. That's said in court. So their their story is that, you know, they paint this picture of an angry mob of union brothers, beat Monfiles to unconsciousness. They cover it up by tossing him in the in the pulp vat, and they tell the jury, We don't have any evidence of this. <laughs> there's no blood, there's no weapon, there's no eyewitnesses who saw any of this. All they have are testimony, which a lot of people say is coerced, saying pieced together to try to kind of corroborate what Randy Winkler said happened. So what does the state rely on here? What does the state rely on for evidence? Well, they use David Weiner's testimony, right? All that and, you know, all important suppressed memory of uh, two of the guys walking with something long between them toward a pulp bat, which was actually if true, an hour before Tom Monfiles went missing, because he was seen after that. So they ask him why he didn't... <laughs> That's pretty good evidence right, right there. So, so, so they ask him why he didn't talk about that in the, Joe Do- in the John Doe investigation, and he says, quote, uh, I had a mental block or something, unquote. This is evidence that the, I get that, those a lot, that the prosecution is putting on. Yeah, that's it's the fact that that was allowed is... Now, the interesting, the other interesting thing about Wiener, other than his suppressed memories, is in November of 1993, he shoots his own brother to death in an argument. His own brother. He loads up two guns after they have an argument on the phone in which his brother apparently says he's coming over. He sits on his steps inside his house waiting for his brother. His brother comes over, opens the door, and he blows him away. He was charged and convicted of second-degree reckless homicide. And he said, quote, he was under a great deal of personal stress from the Monfiles case, unquote. He'd been under heavy surveillance after Monfiles' death. He started using an enlisted number. And before settling differences in the early fall of 1993, Wiener and his wife had filed for divorce and listed their house for sale. It says that Wiener told police his brother was violent towards him and in the past had he believed he was going to be, beat him to death 
This is according to to the court records. So turns out him and his wife didn't end up getting divorced, but. So now for that, for blowing his brother away, he gets a sentence of 10 years and second degree reckless homicide. He sat on the steps waiting for his brother with two loaded guns and kills him when he comes in the house. And he gets a 10 year sentence for second degree reckless homicide. Now, And he was afraid his brother was going to beat him. Now, both Wiener and the prosecution denied that Wiener got any kind of a deal for talking about this suppressed memory, right? However, his sentence was shortened from 10 years to 8 years after he testified, and he winds up serving three. He kills his brother, and he winds up serving three years in prison. But yeah, no deal was made, was it? Yeah, no sarcasm. So now, also before the trial started, Brian Kellner, right, he of the drunken barroom confession, went to the attorneys on both sides and said he was not comfortable with his statement because he felt it was coerced by Winkler. And he said that Kutska was actually talking in hypotheticals. He was saying, what if this happened? What if that happened? Not a reenactment at all. Including the tool incident that I mentioned. Also, the owners of the bar, remember them, who were supposedly used as reenactments, as, as uh, you know, they were used as, as actors in this uh, reenactment. They said nothing like that ever happened. That never happened. It was figured that Kellner was actually confronted by the suspects and wanted to change the truth. Now, how could Randy Winkler have coerced a grown man into making a statement like this, if it's false, right? Well, Brian Kellner had recently gone through a divorce, and he'd won custody of his children. who were in mid- They were in middle school at Similar this time. Similar to Wiener in this regard. So Winkler, it appears, threatened the custody of his children along with Kellner's job, to the point of... Winkler sending somebody to their school, to the kids' school, impersonating a social services employee, taking the kids from school and bringing them to social services in Oconto County. That's not an intimidation tactic? This is the, I mean... This is the lead homicide Intimidation is not the... This is underhanded, slimy, disgusting behavior by anybody who's supposed to be protecting and serving, no matter what you're trying to prove. He also, his kids are now adults. Right, and they're in that documentary that I talked about, Beyond Human Nature. I, again, I implore you to watch it. They also say that Winkler would come to their house when they knew that Kellner wasn't home. These are minors. These are 13, 14-year-old kids. And Easily he would, influenced. He would come to their house and badger them about their dad when they knew their, when he knew their dad wasn't, wasn't there. So, I mean, this is, we've How covered... How would you respond at any age, right, much less at that age? Of course, I mean, we know this stuff happens, right? You'd mentioned uh, two people in the Walter Ellis case were convicted of killing people that we know Walter Ellis For convicted. intimidation. Both right. on coerced right. testimonies. You, just, you get so scared that you just say anything to get them off your case. And both of those guys sued Milwaukee County and won millions of dollars. Because, understandably, I mean, money is, you know, the root of all evils, but... At some point when you're being treated that way, that's the only way they can pay you back. Look what happened in the Bambenic, Lori Bambenic case. It all sounds kind of familiar, right. doesn't it? And it's all in the same time, late 80s, early 90s. This stuff is, is runs rampant. And if it's happening here, it's, it's happening elsewhere. It's not just here in Wisconsin. Now, again, Brian Kellner writes a statement, or actually he has attorneys write a statement, and it says, quote, I am the Brian Kellner that testified at the Monfiles murder trial. At the time that Randy Winkler took a statement from me on 11-30-94, I had been interrogated for eight hours. During this time, Randy Winkler had threatened me with the loss of my job, losing my children, and being put in jail. 
He told me that I was lying and that I could be treated as a hostile witness and subjected to long and unpleasant time at a John Doe hearing. In addition to the above, Sergeant Winkler also told me that my ex-wife, who was at the time my live-in companion, was having an affair with Keith Kutzka. All lies. These are the lead homicide detectives we're working with. All they had to go by was interviews and hearsay and 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 leads. A lot of them, and a lot of the interviews they got were from people that served time with the people that were convicted. Right now, speaking yeah, speaking of inmate stories, James Gilliam was also one of their star witnesses. Who's James Gilliam? Well, he shared a jail cell with Ray Moore after Ray Moore was in, was arrested. And uh, James Gilliam told him that uh, Ray Moore said that basically all six, all of the Monfiles six killed Monfiles. And that he picked up a newspaper that had all six of their pictures on it. And he pointed to it and he said, quote, take your pick about who killed him. So he's saying that Ray Moore admitted to him that he killed, along with the other five, Tom Monfiles. After not telling anybody else... Here we are still, 30 years later, has not told anybody else that, but he told this random inmate that he was in a cell with that story, right? And I, I mean, not, not to say that people in jail aren't, they're still human beings, they're still credible human beings, but maybe not as credible as somebody who's not in jail. Now, again, James Gilliam apparently got nothing for this, and no, no help from the prosecution at all. He was in jail for waving a knife at another woman, his girlfriend at the time. He got out virtually no repercussions. They let him walk. In 2001, James Gilliam murdered his wife with a knife. Nice work. These are the, the words that they're using. These are the people that they're using to put these six guys away. Yeah, not necessarily credible source. I mean, you also, you have, you have testimony from people, people. that are willing to lie, put sure, it that way. Sure, sure. They also had testimony from people saying that they didn't really like Dale Bast and, and that he was kind of scary. This sure. is this is the evidence that they had, right? They had they they admit to the jury we have no physical evidence. And there's people I don't nothing. like, but I'm probably not going to accuse them of murder. So what do you have? Nothing. You have the testimony of two convicted murderers, hearsay and stories, and a recanted story uncorroborated by anybody else. What do you have? But on October 28, 1995, after a six-week trial, six-week trial, the jury takes less than ten hours to come back with six guilty verdicts. I surely would like to see what they saw. Monfiles had been dead for nearly three years at that point. Now the jurors talked a little bit afterwards, again saying that um, they were really confused. <laughs> but they... I'm confused. Apparently not enough. It's how many years after the fact and I'm confused and I've read all the... Supposed facts. But they've spoken very, very little since this. They're not apparently very easy to access. They don't want to talk. It's like people who went to Vietnam, they just don't want to talk sure. about it. Even 30 years later, they don't They don't want to talk about it. All the six got six life sentences. Now, they got six life sentences, but in April of 2001, Mike Piaskowski's guilty verdict was thrown out by a U.S. district judge. He served six years in Dodge Correctional Institution, and on April 3rd, 2001, he was free. 
So the, the U.S. district judge says connecting the evidence available to the conclusion that Bieskowski knew about and was involved in killing Monfiles, quote, requires a leap of logic that no reasonable jury should have been permitted to take. That is a strong statement. It just called the jury completely unreasonable. Right. It's it's political speak, It's but it, it's a strong statement. So obviously the state appeals this uh, and they lose. So his... Piaskowski's acquittal basically was upheld by uh, U.S. Court of Appeals. Now, that decision says, quote, the record is devoid of any direct evidence that Piaskowski participated in the beating of Monfiles and the available circumstantial evidence at most casts suspicious on him. This is a far cry from guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, unquote. That's, in my opinion, 100% correct. There is zero evidence that any of these six guys did anything to Tom Monfiles. I, my only question about this is, what about the other five? Why was Piaskowski the one? I mean, it was, I guess it was his lawyers, obviously, that got this taken care of. All of their federal appeals were already taken care of and denied. So I'm not sure exactly how this went into motion that Piaskowski got out. And all five other men were repeatedly denied parole for years after they were convicted. Hearn, Moore, and Johnson were first eligible in April of 2010, uh, and Kutzko was first eligible in 2015 for parole. So Dale Baston gets released in 2017 because of health issues. He's released because he's sick and they can't, the jail can't help him anymore. And he, he dies. dying in prison. He dies at a healthcare facility in 2018. He was 77 years old. So he spends the rest of his life in prison. Michael Hearn, Michael Johnson, and Ray Moore were all released in 2018 and 19 respectively after serving 25-plus years. Keith Kutzka is still in prison. He's the only one that's still in. He'll be 73 all, in 2023. All of his parole hearings have been denied. Now, in 2014, the Innocence Project of Minnesota took on Kutzka's case and got him an evidentiary hearing for a possible new trial. And their angle was that Monfiles died by suicide, which sounds crazy on its surface, no doubt. Sounds preposterous. But one of the people that testified on behalf of Keith Kutzka is Tom Monfile's brother, Cal, who does believe that Tom likely did this to himself. He originally believed he was murdered, but for a long time he stopped believing that. Tom's wife, Susan, even believed when she first heard that he was deceased, told, told Tom's parents that she thought that he died by suicide. She had apparently found strange notes in their bedroom that indicated that this may have been a suicide. This was shortly after his death. Now the knots, remember the knots that we talked about earlier, the knots that the police were checking to see if Tom could have tied himself because they were kind of special knots. The knots tied around the rope, which was Tom's rope, by the way. It was, as, as Mickey said before, it was a jump rope that he kept in his work area just to get exercise while you're sitting there all day. The knots tied were kind of specialized knots that Tom learned how to tie in the Coast Guard. And he was the only one of these between him and the Monfile Six that knew how to tie those knots. And Cal actually recalled going to Tom's house soon after the death, and he found a string tied to nails in a ceiling of the screen porch as if Tom was spray painting something, hung it up, and then cut the ropes, leaving just the knots, which, as Scott mentioned, were the same exact kind of knots that he had seen many times before himself. He says, quote, it wasn't that uncommon, but it's not a knot everybody's going to tie. And then if you look at the accuracy of the way it's tied, that's the knot he always tied. 
I used to cut down trees with him when we went boating. That was his knot. Now, the other thing is Tom would also talk about pe- talk to people that he worked with about his time in the Coast Guard. And remember, Mickey said he went to the Coast Guard after high school. Now, one of his missions in the Coast Guard when he was in San Francisco was doing search and recover missions for people that threw themselves off the Golden Gate Bridge, committing suicide. And he would talk to the people he worked with about the things that he would find tied around their neck to weight them down. Like he's been thinking about it for a long time. Now, other forensic pathologists were called in to refute the original medical examiner's claims that this was definitely a homicide and that the injuries certainly occurred before he went into the vat when there's really no way of knowing that. And many of his injuries were consistent with being hit by the propeller on the bottom of the vat, including the cut marks on his head, which were the exact dimensions of the propeller blades. Cal also believed that his brother was possibly dealing with undiagnosed mental health issues, which would explain the story about the things on the bridge. He was having marital problems. He feared about losing his job after he found out people were reporting a problem that he reported outside outside of the union. So he was scared for his life. And it sounds like he had mental health issues anyway, and if he was having marital problems, which may have been caused by those mental health issues, it sounds like there was a lot going on and may have been going on for a long time. And this is his brother that is saying that. Now, also in this 2014 evidentiary hearing for Keith Kutzka, this is where Randy Winkler is pretty much put on blast by Brian Kellner's kids who testify at that hearing. And they say everything that he did, along with all the other uh, testimonies from people talking about the antics of Randy Winkler. And Randy Winkler gets on the stand, too, and he's asked about all this stuff. And all the, the transcripts of all this are online. You can look at this. And he just basically says, I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. You know, just what you'd expect a, a garbage human to say. He doesn't defend his work. He doesn't defend his tactics. He doesn't defend the job that he did on it. He says, I don't recall. He says he didn't even recall Brian Kellner had kids. Yeah. Right. Actually, one quote he had was, quote, that is so ridiculous. If you just look at the evidence, the fact that he had weight tied around his neck, he was dumped in the bottom of the vat. He was knocked unconscious before he went into the vat. It'd be an impossibility for him to commit suicide, unquote. It's not an impossibility. Evidently. I don't know what happened on that day. I have no idea. I don't know that these guys are innocent at all. And even Zakowski said, quote, it's ridiculous to think that that was a suicide. There were too many injuries to too many different parts of the body, including injuries to his groin and to his neck, which were consistent with being attacked, unquote. But again, there's no evidence. There's no There's no proof. Or there's no any, anybody having spoken about him being attacked. It's just a story that was conjugated. They made up the story, and then they went backwards to try to corroborate it. And even, even after all this, after calling all this into question, bringing in other pathologists saying that they refuted the medical examiner's uh, initial exam, um, Kutzka's motion for a new trial was denied. So he still is in prison today as we stay here in May of 2023. And it should be noted, every last one of these Monfile 6 None of them have ever admitted to guilt. They still hold on to their absolute innocence, which doesn't always mean a whole lot, but in this case it sure sounds like a lot of times people are guilty, eventually it comes out. 
these people are still holding true, whether they're still serving or not. Now, Susan Monfiles wound up suing the city of Green Bay for letting that tape out. And she won $2 million. In 1995, she won $2 million. There's you also, can't blame her. Oh, of course not. There's also laws on the books today called the Monfiles Law, which is a further safety net to make sure that that never happens again. In, in August 2009, a book called The Monfiles Conspiracy, The Conviction of Six Innocent Men was published by authors Dennis Gullickson and John Gay, Worked on it for almost a decade. On June 12th of 2016, episode of Deadline, Crime with Tamron Hall, airs on national television. It was entitled Alibis or Accomplices. This was about the DeMond Files case. And in June 2017, a book entitled Reclaiming Lives, Pursuing Justice for Six Innocent Men was published by author John Trepa, then published a second edition later on in 2021 with updates. So... There are stories being told about this. That's how much of a national story it became. Both of those books that Mickey talked about both have the angle that these men are innocent and they were railroaded. That's their opinion. Obviously. Well, the title alone says yeah, that. That's their obviously that's their opinion. But again, when you when you look at when you look at this case, I just I don't I don't I, again I don't know that these guys are innocent. I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't there, but I do know that. The state certainly did not prove that they did this. There's nothing in the state. It's not like there's any secret evidence out there, right? It's not like, you know, it's not that you can't say that, well, you weren't in that in that courtroom. Sure, of course we weren't. But we can see what the jury saw. That's all public knowledge. It's right here. And everyone. There's nothing there. Everyone says over and over there was nothing there. It was said at the time. Right. They were trying to prove it. And, and again, as Scott has mentioned in these words, we are proponents of, of of police officers and police departments, we they are trying to protect and serve, and most of them are good people trying to do their best. It is not an easy job. People are difficult; they're just difficult. So, and and the law is difficult. So, trying to find ways to to figure it out and keep everybody protected according to the law is not an easy job. I don't want to do it. That's why I'm not a cop. There are things that are done wrong sometimes to try and uphold, or or just end a case. For whatever reason these people had, it sure seems like they were doing that. And it's it's irresponsible, it's ridiculous, and they ruined people's lives as a result. And that's very unfortunate, to say the least. It comes with standards to be in those positions. I have police officers in my family. I have police officers very close to my family. All right, so do I. They're stand-up people. That job comes with standards. Randy Winkler has been disgraced. He was forced to, to resign for a multitude of reasons from the Green Bay Police Department. He received a 26-page outgoing letter of employment outlining all of his infractions. 26 pages. Now, the Green Bay Police Department says it has nothing to do with this case. I would beg to differ. I bet you a lot of it has to do with this case. But basically, they, they told him, uh, you're, you need to resign or we're going to jack you. And, you know, they came to an agreement that he he gets... You know, some kind, he winds up getting some kind of a disability retirement card. So he, he does, uh, he did retire from there. He gets like 60 grand a year now tax-free from them. But they paid him to go away, pretty much. And again, this story is not about him. You know, it, it ends up, he ends up being kind of a villain if if everything that we're speculating is true and these guys were innocent. He, he did some nasty, disgusting things, even if he was right. But it's irresponsible. The truth 
shall set us free, as, 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 as the saying goes. So the things he did to, to try to prove these people guilty, you know, they weren't right, especially if they weren't. So unfortunately, this is something, as we say a lot in our episodes, we all have a responsibility as human beings to try to be right to each other. And especially if you're somebody of the, of the law, these, these tactics are, they're not right and you're not helping anyone. Ultimately, you're, you're only hurting. You got to pay attention to your local leaders and you got to pay attention to your local elections. These people matter. Your school boards, your sheriffs, your DAs, your judges, these are the decisions that these people make. They matter. And this is the, this is the best justice system in the world. There's no doubt about it. You cannot argue that. But it only works when it's predicated on honesty and integrity. And it just so happens that Oftentimes, there's too many people and those who are supposed to uphold the law uh, that don't have that. Amen, brother.